Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. I'm Amanda, and I left academia about one year ago to become a scientific editor for grants and manuscripts and an editorial manager for a science website. I'm Ian, and I've recently left academia to move into a science communication, editing, and publishing career. And I'm Dr. PMS. I've left academia about two years ago to work as a biotech salesperson, and I'm still in recovery. We're in various phases of transitioning out of academia, and we'll share insights, advice, and problems we encounter at each stage. Hello, everybody. Um, Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Uh, This is Ian, and I'm here with Clady. And this week, we're uh, without Amanda, sadly, she sends her apologies, but um, she'll be back um, in our next episode. And we're here tonight with a guest, however. Um, Gary McDowell is the executive director of the Future of Research, um, the FOUR Symposium. And I'm going to just let him tell you about the Future of Research organization. So, Gary, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Good to be with you. Um, yeah, so Future of Research is a nonprofit that is uh, working for and with early career researchers, um, focus a lot on grad students and postdocs in particular, uh, and we're trying to help them navigate the academic system and also to help them advocate for change in that system. And a huge part of this is in trying to shine a light on the darkness that there is within the system in terms of how many people there are and where they go and, and um, you know, right through to things like how they encounter the processes of peer review, how they're finding mentoring um, and all that of that kind of thing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's excellent. And I guess we should say um, implicit in that is that, you know, you are, um, you come from an academic background, right? That's You're, right. <laughs> you did a PhD and, and a postdoc, I assume. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's why your interest in the future of research came about and how the organization came about too, right? Yeah, um, pretty much. It's, uh, yeah, I, I did a PhD in the UK. I came over to postdoc in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my first postdoc at Boston Children's. Um, didn't have the best experience overall. Uh, was there for two years and then ended up moving to Tufts for two and a half years. And uh, in that time, sort of through the process of going through the postdoc, became very interested in the system and um, you know the, the sort of pressures people were facing in navigating those um, and ended up starting to study those things and a- ask a lot of questions about it. And you know how the nonprofit got founded was essentially through having a conference, bringing lots of young scientists together in the Boston area to discuss the things that we were facing and try and come up with solutions to them, um, producing a white paper. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in the end, we ended up helping with a bunch of meetings around the country and then forming a nonprofit to try and continue that kind of work. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I'll this just... was kind of how you made the transition. So it seems that it was very smooth. Like at some point you just realized that you didn't want to do research anymore. You didn't want to be a postdoc and that other path was kind of already there. It's yeah, it's interesting. Um, 
because a lot of things sort of fell into place at once. So I was doing this work sort of as a hobby, right, while I was also a postdoc um, and actively researching things about the postdoc uh, and thinking a lot and talking a lot uh, and writing a lot in particular about the, the nature of the postdoc position and, and the sort of scientific enterprise in the US. Um, and helping out with these meetings and that kind of thing. And we were approached um, at the meeting that we held in the Bay Area mm-hmm. by um, a group who gave us our initial funding grant, uh, the Open Philanthropy Project. And oh. they basically said, you know, would you, we'd be interested in giving you some money for something, whether that's for a conference or whether it's for staff. Um, and so we wrote a grant, um, and that's the grant that funds me now. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. We didn't sort of go out of our way to to start applying for things. Um, it sort of all came together, <laughs> you know, lots of right places, right times. Um, I think that somebody put in a good word for us uh, with the, the the organization and suggested that they might think about funding us. So that was mm-hmm. yeah, an interesting sort of tradition. Yeah. So it seems that you will not like you didn't get out of academia like the outside <laughs> push you away you know kind of like come here Gary. <laughs> but arguably yeah. I mean even though your position is officially outside of academia arguably you're still within it a little bit too because you oh. know it is sort of like your daily interactions are with people who are still in academia and stakeholders in that world right. Yeah, it's it seems to be the most closely um, involved with academia that I could be without actually being within the academic system itself, for sure. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you I, you know you could be considered science adjacent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like this all happened pretty quickly with like the getting the funding, and you know, as soon as that happened, we're usually like, "Yep, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit now." Um, was the transition period like from postdoc to, you know, full-time executive director very brief? Like how was that transition period? Yeah, it um, it was a, it's a weird, it was a weird kind of time because at the time that this was starting to come together, I was also applying for K99 and I was still mm-hmm. very much thinking about um, a faculty position. And in particular, a big part of this was um, almost to be taken seriously in doing this work. I was worried that I would actually need to be in a faculty position. Um, I was concerned that if I did move outside and and work from the outside, that people would then view that as not legitimate or, you know, that that in order to, to sort of get, I felt a lot of my legitimacy was because I was in the system as a postdoc, um, mm-hmm. right? And that I felt that if I left, it would then become, you know, I would have less authority to talk about it than if I was uh, in a faculty position. Um, and so it, it was weird. It was a weird time because I was in parallel applying for the K99 or I was at the end of my resubmission, I should say, because obviously it was a long 14 month period of applying and then reapplying um, versus this other grant where uh, we were asked for a two-page proposal and we ended up writing a three-page proposal. It's pretty naughty. Um, and a couple of weeks later, they were like, yep, here here you are. Um, and, you know, in both cases, I didn't get scored on the K99. So, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was an interesting 
comparison of the the processes and really a good indicator i think of what um you know the direction that i should probably think about taking you know um and whether the the frustrations i would feel in trying to be within the academic system um you know would just become too much versus actually becoming sort of a known name in researching the those frustrations as an academic subject in and of themselves so so that was all sort of a, a weird kind of you know parallel process to be a part of and then at the same time logistically um so my husband uh was a, at medical school at the time mm -hmm. and so he was applying to residencies and he was going through the match process and you know the match process involves applying to a bunch of different programs uh, them interviewing you and then they draw up a list of their favorite candidates and you put down a list of your favorite programs and it all goes into a computer and then the computer tells you everyone gets an envelope on the same day telling them where they're going so you know that obviously made trying to think about how and when and where to get a faculty job extremely difficult because we yeah. literally yeah. didn't know where in the US you know we could sort of restrict it and we did strategize a little uh, and we actually ended up in San Francisco, which was not mm -hmm. top of the, I mean, it was, it became the place we picked through the residency process. But in the beginning, it was um, strategizing to stay in the Northeast. Again, if I got the K99, I would be tied to Boston mm -hmm. and thinking about like the Chicago, Boston area and all those kinds of things. So, okay. so yeah, there, there were all those things going on at once. And obviously with this position, I could go wherever, which mm -hmm. was obviously very nice. attractive too yeah but didn't you get uh, uh, a little skeptical or afraid to take the leap to finally say like hey okay I'm I'm done with academia I'm not going to get a, a faculty position but then you're going to jump into something that it was grant also mm -hmm. money and how was mm -hmm. that those feelings yeah in, in some ways, the transition itself didn't seem too hard because, um, you know, I always say that this job checks all the bo boxes of what I was looking for in sort of mm -hmm. faculty kind of role, um, you know, and then I get to work in interesting research. Um, I'm, you know, very independent. Um, I get to think a lot about these kinds of things. It's very intellectually rewarding. Um, as you say, I'm like a PI on a grant. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a natural thing. Um, I think that the major, I don't want to use the word trauma, but it was traumatic in leaving the academy, you know, and I think we, um, you know, in your, your podcast, I think you talk about this a lot. And it's, I think it's a really important topic that I always try and address with people who are exiting, because I don't think people understand um, until you're going through that process, just how, how difficult it is. And I think in particular, it was striking for me because one could argue that nobody knew more than me um, what a smart decision that would be in, in my situation, right? Like I had all of the data that was available. I was studying it. I was looking at it. I was looking mm -hmm. at the system. And, you know, on paper, it was just so obvious what the decision should be, especially when I'd essentially been handed a grant, right? Like the, mm -hmm. it would it would have been and people, you know, were like, you'd be crazy not to take this. And at the same time, leaving the academy. So 
I remember distinctly the moment when I think I like finally realized I was going to leave and I was driving. I lived in Providence. I commuted up to Tufts every day, mm-hmm. four and a half hour round trip every day. Wow. And yeah, which was, was crazy. So um, I remember distinctly I was in a traffic jam on I-95, of course, as, mm-hmm. as was common. And uh, I was listening to the song Love and Anger by Kate Bush. And um, you should go away and look at the lyrics because I was listening to the words and it spoke to me about this idea of having this thing that you can't tell anyone that, you know, that you're, you have this, this angst about and you know it's never going to happen. And I just started crying because I, you know, and at this point I had, my, my husband had actually just interviewed in San Francisco and I'd spoken to him on the phone and it was very clear, very clear that he should put it first and that he was going to get in when he and he did. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of threw all our plans up in the air of being in the Northeast and what have you. And it meant like, even if I got the K99, that I really shouldn't take it or, you know, that that decision would have to come. I was just like, so, so upset at the realization, um, but then sort of relieved once I'd come to that point um, of, you know, once I had gone through that that brief process of being upset about it and I got over it, then the transition from that point on was was pretty straightforward. Um, I'll say when I talk to people who are going through that process, it's remarkable how everyone goes through very similar, you know, emotions and and manifestations of that ingrained psychology like the message we've always had that to leave is to fail and like this is what you should be doing um you know I think some people think about the sunk cost and how long they've been training I felt Mm -hmm. very fortunate that what I was moving into I could genuinely say my training was extremely beneficial for all of this Mm -hmm. um and so I didn't have that sense but I did definitely have the sense that I am you know, people will view me and I will feel myself that I am a failed academic. I'm a failed scientist, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So though all those emotions, that was the, the toughest part was my own getting out of my own head about it and, and out of that, that expectation that had all been built up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's an excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because I mean, I'll just speak from my own experience like I don't know that I had a moment like that and like I'm some ways I guess I'm still working out you know those feelings about the academy and like you know it seems like in some ways I don't have a lot of time to think about it either but because like you know I'm a year or almost two years away now and am I better off I uh, I don't know I you know what I mean so like I'm one of those cases where it's not like I'm, my feeling is it's not very clear to cut mm-hmm. um at the same time like you know like you say like on paper the data all say like yeah you should explore other avenues besides academia right now right. in this moment and you know like i'll still sit here and advocate for science and for more funding and more equitable equitable system but um you know like i think i'm glad that i'm not where i was but it's hard mm-hmm. to say it's like oh I'm so much 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 better off because like I think there's a lot of those kinds of stories too out in the world 
And we'll definitely link to that song in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I and, was actually, I looked for the lyrics and yes, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell you what I'm feeling. I don't know if I'm ready yet. You come walking into this room like you're walking into my arms. What will I do without you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> this is like my relationship with academia. And yes. it's like this like tenuous hold that it has. And it's, it's this sense of, you know, I'm I'm trying to fight for something that isn't going to happen, right? Yeah, uh, no, I I can you know? I can totally relate to that because I had the same feelings of like being really frustrated and angry and mm-hmm. and I really unlike I guess unlike Ian and Amanda at least I I really wanted to go to academia like I love doing mm-hmm. research mm-hmm. I loved everything about academia and I really tried mm-hmm. and I just I couldn't make it and and I don't think and then I had all those feelings that I was a failure that I uh-huh. should have done this I should have done that um, and then coulda shoulda doesn't do anything you know yeah. and then uh-huh. at some point you just you just realize that this is how life is this is how it happened and then you feel angry you uh-huh. feel frustrated but then after that you kind of kind of like a phoenix you know you just (laughs) find out and I feel like uh, there are many stories as Ian was saying like there are stories that people take the leap and we always say that your next job is doesn't have to be your last job Mm -hmm. and even Mm -hmm. today I tweeted uh, it was like oh in an ideal situation what will be your dream job Mm. and and I like my job. I, I do enjoy what I do. I'm also like uh, academic adjacent because I, mm-hmm. I deal with academics uh, all mm-hmm. the time, except that I sell things to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but still, there's always, uh, for me, there's always like this part of the science advocacy that I really love. I really mm-hmm. like to talk about research and, and, and how we can make science better. And and I would love to be paid to do that, you know. I'd love. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I'm on Twitter, and sometimes I want to read more stuff, and I don't have the time. And I like, can someone pay me to do I, that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I yeah, like to put this in maybe another way. Like I don't know if even of you, or if anyone watches The Expanse, it's a sci-fi yeah. TV show that one of the characters like the the premise of the show is like people of sort of move beyond Earth a little bit and like, you know, people live permanently on Mars and out in the asteroid belt and like one of the characters who still lives on Earth is like, yeah, you know, Earth's true gravity is that, you know, it's it's, you know, the tr- cradle of humanity. It's where people actually came from and like that has real weight to people and it's really hard to actually leave. Mm. And like, you know, in the show, like Mars is not luxury exactly. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> a harsh it's a hard life. Um, and I don't know, I, I think a lot of academics might still feel that gravity of academia being like, yeah, it's hard, but like, it's going to be harder out there on the frontier. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like, I mean, it is like, you know, like, am I going to go live on, is it going to be me living on Mars if I leave academia? And, um, I do think that's a very common mentality mm-hmm. of, you know, leaving home and, like the only place you've ever known and like whoa what is this new world i have to orient myself in um yeah 
So if people want another way into the feeling of the gravity that academia can have on those who went through doing a PhD and a postdoc and like all the sunk costs and all of the training that we get that says, you know, if you leave, you're a failure, like mm. all of that, the culture that, you know, exists. Because, you know, honestly, like I've not talked to a lot of my academic friends from before, like, I, yeah, <laughs> it's like a pretty stark boundaries. So it's it's super interesting, actually, um, because what I find with a lot of fellow recovering academics mm -hmm. is I'm relatively unique in still being so immersed in the academic world. There's not many of us who are like that. Yeah. And I've actually found this thing, which I think is totally to do again with this, you know, trauma of leaving mm -hmm. um so many people will say to me you know what you're doing it's you know i wish i'd been there when i was there and um it sounds really great and so on but they're like i can't i can't sort of put my put any sort of um, you know any energy into thinking about it because i just want to make a completely clean break with academia i don't want to have anything yeah. more to do with it because of the relationship i had with it and it's really interesting seeing how how that break mm -hmm. is sort of imposed by academia. Like there's a very clear thing in academia of like you left and, you know, I think there are some really good genuine efforts to try and reach out to people outside and, you know, mm -hmm. forge contacts with industry and so on to like at least talk, come in and talk to people, uh, grads and postdocs and so on about life outside. But there's also this other sort of self-imposed um, isolation from academia by people, a lot of people who leave. And, you know, again, I yeah. think it's really understandable, to be honest. Yeah. 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 No. Okay. I so guess that you'd, it takes, yeah. I don't know, for me, it took a while to understand why, how, because when you're in academia, you don't realize, but you're surrounded by academics and you mm -hmm. end up talking about research and then you yep. end up going to the happy hour, the postdocs happy hour from the PDA and, and everything is around your your academic little world and then when you jump out of academia it's there is this that there is this weird time that you don't really know what to say you didn't yeah. know you really didn't don't it seems that you don't have anything in common I mm -hmm. personally I do have still have some friends from uh my academic time but um not that many, you know, like, mm. and, and it's different. It's very different. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, like, I still have a toe in it. I'm not like Gary, but like, you know, I do work with the National Postdoc Association now mm. and um, as the as an editor of their newsletter. And so, like, I'm in this world a little bit. And, like, my day job is still with scientists in the startup land world, of mm -hmm. mostly the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so, like, you know, I do get my fix of scientists every day. <laughs> and in some ways I'm like oh yeah like you know seeing it from the outside from another side of just you know just like getting them the things they need to do their work I'm just like oh boy mm -hmm. <sighs> I mean so, it's a little different Gary yeah. um tell us how is um do you have a typical work day how does right. your day yeah. look like mm -hmm. yeah um so I work from home um mm -hmm. which you know, has its challenges. Um, 
I actually clearly when um, you and I met up in San Francisco, I was working in a co-working space. Yeah, I remember. Um, and they um, moved out of that space. It's no longer a sort of co-working space thing. So since then, I've been working from home. Um, and so, you know, have mm-hmm. to first of all, you have to regulate your schedule pretty well when you're <laughs> when you're doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But usually, what will involve is, um, you know, I do a lot of calls through the day. Like quite often, I'm speaking to journalists um, mm-hmm. about stories about, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in young scientists, where they're going, the struggles they're facing. Um, mm-hmm. So I do a lot of that, which is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. um, and also sometimes talking about our own work, which is great. Um, usually, I'll, I'll be doing a lot of writing through the day. So um, applying for grants is a big thing <laughs> for us at the moment too. Um, uh, so it's a lot of grant writing. Um, also a lot of paper writing. Um, I have a whole pile of papers that I want to, to try and get through and written. Right now we're working on one on peer review on a survey we did about peer review experiences. Um, so there'll usually be a lot of that. Um, and uh, we have various working groups in the organization um, that our, our board members are on. So, um, you know, a couple of times a week, there's usually a, a call with them, video call, and we're going through, you know, where the project is and various actions, uh, just having those sorts of discussions too. Um, yeah, so it's a lot of a lot of writing. And then occasionally I get, uh, you know, a trip out somewhere, um, invited to give a talk, um, which is really great. I'll, you know, go and speak usually to grads or postdocs or both. Um, and uh, sometimes just a talk, sometimes uh, doing a workshop. Um, and then getting to meet with um, with early career researchers as well, which is um, extremely useful because again, mm-hmm. I'm now outside of the system in a, to an extent, um, and so sort of immersing myself back in and talking with people about what they're facing and you know especially getting reactions to what we're working on and what I talked about and whether it's you know still relevant or whatever. So mm-hmm. that's always it's always useful and always like a good check as well on whether I'm still hitting the right note on things right mm-hmm. so yeah or whether I'm just like way off on what's happening uh so that's that's always really useful too so yeah that's sort of a typical working day it's a lot of a lot of time at the computer on my desk you're almost yeah. an academic <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah I mean again this is like it's a weird this is why I find non-profit work um to be quite a natural um yeah. you know destination for folks um, and, you know, I'm doing a lot of research too, right? So I'm mm-hmm. usually doing a lot of, um, you know, what the, I think the number one question I get asked is, do I miss science? Which is, first of all, as we all know, very frustrating because we're all still doing science and mm-hmm. most scientists are not academics. But mm-hmm. in most people's minds, science equals academia. So you have to get... Bedding. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I used to work with frogs. So they're like, do you miss mm-hmm. the frogs? <laughs> and like actually you know I don't really miss the bench um mm-hmm. another part of the transition was that I felt like kind of done with bench work to be honest like I yeah. liked it but I was sort of like uh you know I'm I've been injecting frog embryos for like 10 years I, I think I you know I'm ready to move on to something else um yeah. and what's really interesting is playing around with data which mm-hmm. I get to do a lot and um or I'm trying to get data right so again mm-hmm. trying to find ways of counting postdocs um and you know like the postdoc salary stuff we've been doing has been really fun because that's very simple data you know it's like 
a mm -hmm. person and then a number. Mm -hmm. And even that's very hard to get, of course. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, playing around with that and doing all sorts of analyses, that's really fun. So I spend a lot of time. It's hard actually to not start doing that when I'm writing a grant or something, right? Which I think a lot of yeah. academics would also sympathize with, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get a piece of yeah. exciting data and you just want to play around with it rather yeah. than <laughs> writing something else. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's yeah, still okay. data handling. So I, I guess that covers your biggest challenges, unless you want to say something else about a big challenge you're facing currently. Um, yeah, I mean, so right now, so our first grant runs out at the end of June. Okay. Um, and so my job, as it stands at the moment, runs out at the end of June. And so the biggest challenge, and like, you know, again, very aligned with academia, biggest challenge for nonprofits is fundraising mm -hmm. and keeping yourself afloat. Um, and, you know, we're applying for various kinds of grants and trying to, you know, get um, interest. The, the group who were originally funding us, uh, who also fund Rescuing Biomedical Research, um, originally they expressed interest in, you know, maybe this being a very long term thing. Um, but when we went up for renewal, they, they told us oh, we've, we've actually decided to move away from this area. Um, and, um, and interestingly, they also told us, which is maybe a, a thing for people to think of, um, they said, well, we're all sort of historians and so on, and we don't really know how to evaluate your, whether what you're doing is actually working. So they gave us like an exit grant for another year. Um, mm -hmm. But they basically said, yeah, like, it seems like you're doing things. Um, but, you know, um, we're sort of moving away from this, um, from this area. So we've been looking around elsewhere and the big, I think one of the big challenges that we are facing as an organization is, you know, I get told a lot by people that what we're doing is really, you know, important and useful um, yeah. and, you know, like really necessary, but it's not really translating into people falling over themselves to like, you know, keep keep the organization going. And a big part of it, I think, is we're really pushing for like long-term systemic changes, mm -hmm. which is not terribly, you know, exciting, nor, you know, if you're thinking about it from a funding perspective, there's not obvious immediate returns on what that looks like. And so there is, a, you know, we're consistently sort of pushed towards, oh, you should be doing like career development workshops and training mm -hmm. modules and that kind of thing, which to be honest is not really my thing or my interest. And, um, you know, not only personally, but it's very small potatoes because what we need, you know, there are very severe problems with the structure of academia and mm -hmm. the incentives involved. And it needs, you know, people working on and pushing for changes to things that are not very exciting sounding to most people like postdoc salaries or the number of postdocs or tracking outcomes. Right. But, you right. know, they're incredibly important. So um, I think we're facing that kind of like challenge in the nonprofit sphere. Um, and also, frankly, that we're all young, uh, new people. So there's the somewhat ironic thing that we're working on how young people aren't getting funding. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, this, this sense of, well, young people aren't as good at getting, you know, at, at doing things or they don't have a track record yet. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's sort of easier when you've been in the game longer to, 
to prove that you're a, a safe investment. And I think we're, you face the same thing in the non-profit world. So ironically, because we're all sort of early career folks, we're facing that very problem too. So yeah. that, that I think is a major challenge for, for anyone in the nonprofit sphere. Okay. It's so funny that uh, I listen to you saying the things and your struggles with like funding and getting money. And, and I keep like, I think that the in the end the world academia nonprofits and industry they all kind of like work more or less in the same way in a general guidelines because I just had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with uh, my academic uh, coordinator and of course it's different we sell things to academics but uh, the 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 purpose of the meeting was how could we uh, do better with them at academics? How could we provide more things to academia? How can we increase our visibility and sell mm. more, of course, because that's in the end what the industry wants. And a lot of my ideas were like long-term ideas. We're mm. kind of like, we need to invest in the students we need, because yeah. those students are going to be our users in five, ten years. Right, yep. And, and and the person that was listening to me, he kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 but we need that now, you know? It's like yeah. this short term. The long term is important. And he's like, yeah, it is important, but we need that thing now. So mm. what we try to compromise during the conversation is trying to say, okay, we'll have some, some sort of projects that will be long term, but then as well, we need to get this short term because we cannot. And he was telling me, Clady, we I cannot just do those things and if and, and ask for upper management for funding for like because I was kind of like, oh, we should put an a GCMS in teaching labs, you know, like for mm -hmm. free. <laughs> and it's like, no, we're not doing that, you know, because we need to have this. Um, little this mind so I guess that this is kind of like the same with you you know yeah it's I, and you know I think it's a lot of the sort of grant cycle like you know the quarterly like returns thing it's yeah you know everyone's looking to the next grant and the next um you know I think it's the same in academia frankly I think it's the same in politics like I think this is mm -hmm. sort of the world we're in right now is very short term I have to think to my next whether it be grant renewal or, uh, you know, my next election, right? Like it's right. It, it's thinking on that those terms and a lot of the bigger issues sort of then have to fall to the side or be broken down into little incremental things that can be done piecemeal, which again, I think is the push for, for us to be doing like training, right? Um, I think training is helpful, but it's all, it's also frankly putting a lot putting all of the responsibility, which I think is what is happening constantly, all the responsibility on grads and postdocs to get themselves out of the mess that has been created, right? Right. And it's, I, you know, I hear this a lot about postdocs, like, oh, well, you know, nobody forces them to do it, right? Like, right. nobody twists your arm and says, you have to be a postdoc. And nobody physically does it, but, like, psychologically they do. Like, as we are yeah. talking yeah. about Yeah, yeah. You are, and, you know, I am always talking to grad students who have got into a PhD to go into industry and they are always telling me like they are constantly sick of being told, oh, but you're good. You should stay in academia. Why don't yeah. you want to stay in academia? 
And there's this weird disconnect in academics' minds that they don't understand that they've created a system where 10 times as many people are in the system who than the number of jobs that they want them to get. And mm-hmm. they have to let people who they think are really great leave the system because they have created yeah. a, you know, it's, a, it's essentially a pyramid scheme and you can't, you can't have everyone go into faculty jobs because you've created too many of them. And there's lots of smart people. And I think the, the assumption tends to be, sometimes explicitly, but often implicitly, oh, the smart people should stay in academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an industry gets everyone else, or every you know, it's usually industry mm-hmm. is seen as the which is the major employer. But you know, everyone else will leave, and we will the cream will rise to the top. And the great panic that I see um, happening right now, and especially with people in grad admissions, is oh, but the smart people are choosing to leave. Like they're smart, and they know like this system is no good, and they're actively deciding to leave. And like. It's frustrating, Mm -hmm. first of all, because it implies that the people who are staying are not smart, which is obviously not true. Like, there are loads of smart people in the system. But it's also this thing of, oh, this person who I think should stay, like, has actively decided to go. And it, like, honestly, I think it throws a lot of um, self-doubt on people, you know, that, like, why are they choosing to leave this career path that I have taken? which is noble and I think, you know, is, is the best and like this kind of thing. And you, right. you know, and it, it is sort of somewhat long term. Yeah. And right. You, you get this yeah. weird like ecosystem of, of people's very odd feelings um, about academia and, and the sort of, you should stay because like some parts are really worth it. Um, and this actually brings up to the, like the big push in, you know, we're pushing and trying to fix problems. And we're, you know, here are these problems, here are the data, we should fix the problems. You would be amazed how many academics say, oh, the problem is that we're talking too much about the problems. No, right? no. And, and there is too yeah. much negative data. And they yep. say, that, and literally, I kid you not, I was on the study at the National Academies and we had this public meeting in Boston and an academic came in <laughs> and said, there are too many negative studies about academia, and I hope what this committee and this report can do is generate more optimistic chatter about yeah. academia. And I was like, I cannot believe that I'm hearing scientists say there is data showing there's a problem, and it's like saying there's too much negative data about cancer. We should just like you know ignore those things rather than solving cancer. We should like look at the upsides, and you're just right. you know it's. It's flabbergasting. It really is. <laughs> yeah. And we should say, too, like, I, I mean, I should say, too, like, it's interesting because, like, I mean, we're all from the life sciences, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And like, this is sort of a particularly acute issue in the life sciences. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want a contrasting view, like we had we had chem jobber on and yes. he's from the chemistry world and the default path and for PhDs in chemistry is go to industry like it's weird if you stay in academia in that world. It, it sounds a lot more like, at least, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, the default path is like, yeah, you go work in industry after you're done with your PhD. Like, nobody stays to be an academic in chemistry. I mean, not nobody, but it's just a very different mindset and culture that has developed around that. Yeah, but regardless, the problem is there, you know, there's yeah, too many, is there. there's too many, yep. academ- there's too many PhD positions, there's too many posts, and again, like, okay, you, you're in a, like, for instance, I, I used to be, I work in neuroscience, 
And in neuroscience, no one gets a job as a fa- in a, fac- a faculty position without a postdoc, you know? Right. So if you want to do, you have to. You just, like, it's not right. like you're not pushing. People are not twisting my arm. But if, if that's the path that you want to go or is the only path that you're presented to, then that's where you go. And then once you are there, you realize that there is no place for everybody. And then you just need to do something else. And there's also no settling in the middle, really. Like, that's Mm -hmm. another issue. So, but we can talk about that, like, ad nauseum. But, (laughs) like, we should get on to our final two questions. Just, like, you know, are you more happy professionally, like, having been outside of the academy for a while? (sighs) This is... A very interesting question because, <laughs> um, so you know, I am academically, I think I'm much happier because I feel I actually now have intellectual independence in a way that, like, for the first time, like, again, it's self directed kind of stuff. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when you're someone's postdoc, and especially I have to say, as a foreigner, you're usually on. You, as a foreigner, you are, unless you're on a K99, on someone else's grant, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you are fulfilling someone else's aims. And you yeah. can have some independence in that. You know, you can have some, but, you know, I was told what I would be working on both times, right? right. And I find the projects interesting, and that's why, you know. But it's not, I have very strong beliefs that the, the postdoc should be a period where you are working on your research and you are learning how to be, um, a group leader, how to manage mm-hmm. a research project and manage a lab, because your PhD, you know, mm-hmm. th- your PhD is where you learn how to do research. Your postdoc should be okay. How can I like, you know, work with someone who's been doing this for some time, and you know, start to you know, do my own work and take it forward. And most postdocs are essentially chief staff scientists. Like that really is the reality. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, particularly the ones on research project grants. That someone else wrote the grant and they are the staff person on it. So, mm-hmm. so obviously, I feel like a lot more. This is sort of work that I am like carrying forward and doing and working on independently, um, and then collaborating with various other groups to try and you know, like we work with the Census Bureau to get data about the biomedical workforce, and that was like a really cool collaboration, and you know, all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that's great. Um, one thing that I sort of take. Um, what you hear a lot, right, is that if you follow your passion, you'll like never work a day in your life and all of this kind of thing, <laughs> right? And I don't yeah. buy into that, right? I am yeah. extremely passionate about work, what I'm working on, and it is very much a double-edged sword because I'm sure people who know me have noticed or people even like following me on Twitter will notice the, the sort of massive swings there are in emotions mm-hmm. when... It can be so frustrating, right? First of all, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time because it's a passion project. There's no like switching off from this. I'm always thinking about this work um, and that can be exhausting. And then you're, you know, I I did this work on like the National Academies Committee, right? And it was extremely useful and worthwhile, but also just it's extremely frustrating trying to affect change in this space. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly... I won't say I was naive going into it. I had a sense that, um, you know, just giving people the evidence wouldn't be enough. But I thought Mm -hmm. at least when you show people the evidence, there at least would be an acknowledgement of that's what the evidence is. And it is, again, 
in all of this sort of academic saying there's too many negative studies, a lot of people have have pinned down the, when I talk about this, they're like, oh, you're like a climate scientist working on trying to convince <laughs> climate change deniers. Yeah. No matter what you show people, and there are a lot of us in this space who have this experience, you'll show people data and people will just say, well, I don't believe that data. And again, how do you deal with scientists who yeah. do not believe data in front of them and who instead take their own subjective anecdotal experience as what must be true? And it's even worse with scientists because they think they're objective. So that's extremely frustrating um, and really demoralizing at times. So it can be really, you know, you have to sort of figure out like the things that you're working on to navigate through. Um, and especially when what we're doing is trying to show everyone what all of the grads and postdocs are actually experiencing. And mm -hmm. always you'll be like, well, that doesn't happen. Like this, this just constantly comes up that like what you're describing just isn't true. And this is why we then. It doesn't happen in my university. Yeah, it right. never happened. It doesn't happen in my institution. I like, I actually famously lost my temper in a meeting once because somebody said this. And I was just so sick of hearing it. I just threw up my hands. I said, it's amazing. This is national level data showing this. And yet it never happens at anyone's institution. Yeah. Of course, there will literally be someone in the room at, quite often yeah. who was at that institution who went through that experience who like, you know, you can point to you and say, so-and-so actually did this at your institution. So like, or knows of this, so you're wrong. So that can be, that, that makes it an extremely tough kind of thing. And then, I, you know, mm -hmm. I've been doing this now, gosh, I guess I've been doing future research stuff for five years. Mm -hmm. um, I've been doing this job full time for nearly three and I am very frustrated at the lack of progress that there is. Um, and again, like just giving people evidence is not enough. It's right. also trying to figure out how to change a system that people are actively benefiting from, right, and don't want to change. Um, and, I, you know, I think we have made some progress, right, but like it's it's really... You just feel sometimes like, oh, this is this is why very little has changed in 50 yeah. years, right? And it's really hard to know if you've changed anything too, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And, it you know, especially when it's like, like, I know there are people getting paid more because of stuff we've mm -hmm. done. I have a sense that the, the conversation around salaries in academia has changed somewhat. Um, you know, mm -hmm. as an example, NIH, the, the advisory committee to, to the director, actually in that room, they had a conversation about how people can't afford to be postdocing, right? Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is amazing that these people in this room are talking about this. And it's hard to say how much of that is due to us, right? Like, it's hard right. to have You've a been oh, leaders sure. in that discussion, right? For right. sure. Right. But it's, so, you know, and the fact that we've been talking about salaries for like three years, surely has an effect but again trying to demonstrate that like you have affected change in this space right is really very without pointing to like we made this one thing happen at this place or what have you so it's well it's always ambiguous and provisional right because like it's like yeah. being in academia because you're creating yeah. new knowledge and new frontiers and new discussions around something that people hadn't discussed before and it's hard to know what the impact is until 20 years from now it's, mm -hmm. it's true but the what, what I find funny with, with folks from academia is that when we're trying to demonstrate what it is that we've done, everyone is really hung up on papers and conferences. And we did a paper and we gave a talk and we did a workshop. I'm like, yeah, that is actually, and it really 
It really metrics, right? Because academia is so much metrics oriented. And it it gives you so this is going to sound like pretty harsh about academia, but compared with academia, what is important in a nonprofit is you have to demonstrate that you're actually achieving change. Like you're 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 doing something. Mm -hmm. Whereas in academia, as long as you're publishing papers, like the paper sort of goes out into the ether and it's a thing and it's a product that in and of itself is then measured. And then, you know, people are like measuring how much it's been cited and so on. But all that tells you is whether people are talking about your work. But it doesn't tell you whether you're solving the problem that you set out to do. And I find the major challenge in working with like early career folks who are in academia is trying to get them out of this mindset of producing a paper is achieving the thing. Like the paper is a means to an end. And I think that's that that it's really scary how much that's been lost in academia right yes. whereas for yeah. us like you know putting out a report or a thing like if that doesn't convince anyone to change something you know because the next step is then taking that to like national academies or taking it to some group and saying here's the evidence that we have what are you going to do to respond to like fixing this problem right and i i guess yeah speaking to that i guess it would say yeah yeah oh, sorry i lost my train of thought there but I think it's good. Um, yeah, that's a good observation. Because hey, like, I know they're going back to your idea of, that's what I was going to say, your idea of going back to like a postdoc should be learning how to manage a lab and build a research program. Well, the publications are the means to that, right? Like, you know, are you building a solid platform mm-hmm. that gets you the K99 or whatever? And I guess we should say in this conversation, the K99 is a big fancy NIH grant that bridges the gap mm-hmm. between postdoc and faculty. It funds a couple years of a postdoc into a faculty position, right? Yeah, it's, it's three years yeah. as a postdoc, and then you transform two, it in R00. Yeah, two as a, a postdoc, and then three, um, sort of as a, an R01, which is the major NIH grant. It's like an R01-like R00, thing. Zero, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And okay. crucially, it's basically the only, it's the only thing that foreigners can apply for in NIH. Oh, wow. So, so that's yeah. why it's... And there's a lot of discussion about K99s right now, as you may have seen, that people think it's essential to have one to get a faculty job, which Mm -hmm. obviously it is not, but it is also very helpful. Oh, yes. I come from the plant sciences world and like we don't get NIH funding. Like, yeah, it's all like National Science Foundation mostly and like sometimes USDA every so often. But um, Okay, so our final question, and then we'll let you go. Like, he's going to end on advice. Like, what would you tell your younger self about, you know, your career path, and like, what advice would you have? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I sometimes wonder, and especially about my first postdoc. Like, would I, knowing what I knew now, would I go back and do it again? Mm-hmm. I think it's always it's always a difficult um. You know, because what you did like has sort of brought you to where you are. So it's it's hard right. to say, right, mm-hmm. whether that was like going into it, it was not ideal, but like I learned things and like I got something mm-hmm. out of it. Um I think the key thing is like telling myself that like what you're going to learn and experience, um, you know, you should take that on board to make sure that other people aren't going through it. Um that that's like I think a key driver of what what I do is I went through these things and I don't think other people should have to do them yeah. um, which I find in contrast to a lot of academic attitudes of like to suffer is to des- deserve an academic position like this martyrdom for academia yeah. like oh, I yeah, there's awful a lot time. of that you should all have an awful time because having an awful time is like is what 
you know, this is a badge of honor, right? Right, it's a badge of honor, right? right? right. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, at the moment, um, as I, you know, I'm now unsure of where I will be working at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would ideally like to still be doing this, but you know, I'm, I'm obviously actively looking at what else I will, I could potentially be doing. So that, that idea of these, it was like you were saying, the job, the next job is not necessarily your last job. Mm-hmm. And I think the, um, I would also say like this transition out, um, is not going to be, it's maybe going to be less scary than like me figuring out my next transition, but. Mm-hmm. Um, the advice I would give is that everyone, you know, so many people, and especially in our generation, are experiencing this, that people are changing jobs far more frequently than, you know, the baby boomers, right? The baby boomers, by and large, got a job and they got it for life, whereas our generation, you know, people are moving around constantly, and it's a very active community of people who are sharing these experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, again, a big part of what made the transition easier was being on social media and Twitter, you know, and like learning yeah. all these things that people do, um, you know, learning, frankly, all the kinds of jobs that there are and then figuring out various kinds of advice that people have about what can and can't work and and, and sort yeah. of navigating all that, which was useful for actually, honestly, mm-hmm. my academic sort of strategy towards the end. Yeah. So I think is really useful in making making it a little less scary thinking about what's coming up. Okay. So I guess final thing, like the website for future of research is futureofresearch.org. And do you want to say a word about how people can support um, future research? And your Twitter handle. Yeah, your Twitter handle. Yeah, we'll have it in the show notes as well. But yeah, yeah. The Twitter for future of research is at forsimp, F-O-R-S-Y-M-P. Uh, my Twitter handle is at biophysicalfrog, so I usually give my more personal thoughts about um, about things, um, uh, and I tweet a lot about academia and stuff personally, um, mm-hmm. so yep, certainly check that out too. Um, and um, yeah, people can support us and check out the website, there's um, ways of volunteering. We're running a GoFundMe mm-hmm. right now to support this mentoring conference that we're having in Chicago uh, in June. Um, okay. And yeah, and our just to briefly talk about that, our hope is to propose this like way of evaluating mentoring at institutions, at departments and institutions, to essentially assess like whether institutions are valuing mentoring, whether they are putting mentoring as a priority in in what they're thinking about with grad and postdoc training. Um, and nice. if you if you look up Athena Swan in the UK, we're basically trying to propose propose that for mentoring that's a scheme in the UK where institutions are badged um, on mm-hmm. um, efforts they have to promote women uh, in start out in STEM and now it's across academia mm-hmm. um, so yeah we're thinking the same kind of thing of a, a little bit of a sort of outside look at, at how mentoring is is going in institutions so we're going to discuss that in Chicago and see if we okay. can in the mentoring space figure that out so yeah mm-hmm. Oh, okay. that's awesome. Gary, right. thank you so much yes. for yes. joining us. I guess that this is a much longer podcast that we usually do, but it was so this awesome. Was yes. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Yeah, and... I enjoy a lot. And good yep. luck with yes. whatever happens this year. Yeah. I'm not sure that it, you will, something, things will just fall up in place. I'm sure. I, 
I feel yeah. yeah, I feel like something will work out, right? Like it's yep. yeah. I'm I'm not as I say I'm not overly worried. It's just like uh like I mean, future, but you're overly worried future. because you're yeah. academic and that's your mind and like <laughs> right. that's how it works, right? <laughs> right? A little bit exactly. The um, but yeah, okay, highly trained mind that's anxious about things. Yeah, uh, academia. Um, yep, Gary, thank you again for joining us, and from Clady and I and Amanda, um, thank you for joining us in another episode of the Recovering Academic, and we will see you um next time. Yeah, thank All you. Right, bye, everybody. For listening. Bye, bye. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Our music is from bensound.com under a Creative Commons license. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps other people find out about us. You can tweet the show at recoveringacad. You can also find all of the hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lady Scientist. I'm at Dr. Underscore PMS. And I'm at IH Street. We're also on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash recoveringacademicpodcast. You can find all of our episodes and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at recoveringacademic.net. And don't forget, there is sunshine outside the ivory tower.